From Hyde Park United Methodist Church in Tampa, Florida, this is the Bible Project 2020, a journey to reading the Bible without fear or frustration. I'm Monica Largess, your host today. On this week's episode, Matt and Celia interview the scholar Luke Timothy Johnson. Dr. Johnson is a New Testament scholar and historian of early Christianity. He is a professor at Candler School of Theology and a senior fellow at the Center for the Study of Law and Religion at Emory University. This discussion covers the pastoral epistles, which are a group of three in the New Testament. The first epistle to Timothy, we usually say 1 Timothy, and 2 Timothy, along with the epistle to Titus. They are presented as letters from Paul the Apostle to Timothy and to Titus. Dr. Johnson lays out how he has learned to understand the authority of these letters and how they are important to the life of the church. I found their talk about how to gain wisdom from the things that scandalize our minds to be very helpful. Now, on to the episode. Welcome, Dr. Johnson. It's an honor to have you join us in our Bible 2020 project. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Today, we're discussing the pastoral epistles. What exactly does that mean? And is there consensus that Paul was the author? These are three letters written to Paul's delegates, Timothy and Titus. For quite a long period in the 19th and 20th century, a growing majority of scholars have regarded these letters as not really being by Paul, but by a later writer. I think that view is wrong because it's based on a false premise that somehow Paul's other letters are so consistent that we can easily compare and contrast these three letters to the authentic letters. So I regard these as letters that are written during Paul's ministry and other his, under his authorization. Now, a very important part to remember, though, and here's the point. The church has always accepted these as part of the church's canon. They are scripture. The authority of these letters has nothing to do with whether or not Paul wrote them, any more than the authority of Mark's gospel rests on the fact that somebody named Mark wrote that gospel. The authority of these texts derives from their being part of the canon. Therefore, those of us in the church should read them as scripture and with the church in its tradition as Pauline. How do you think they add to our understanding of scripture? Well, in in simple historical terms, the three letters to Paul's delegates show us the complexity of Paul's mission. He had to work not only with personal visits, but very often with delegates. He mentions such delegates in the first letter to the Corinthians, the second Corinthians, Romans, Philippians, and these letters, therefore, give us a good sense of what, how Paul dealt with his delegates, how he instructed them, how they were to represent him. I think it's really important, in light of the fact that many people regard them as inauthentic, to note how deeply Pauline these three letters are, distinctively Pauline theological emphases, the cross, the resurrection the gift of the Holy Spirit, 
the transforming power of grace. All three letters, like Paul's letter to the Galatians, argue for a life built upon the foundation of the experience of grace rather than on the keeping of rules. Now, each of these letters also have a distinctive emphasis. First Timothy and Titus were written as what might be called uh, uh, letters uh, to um, a subordinate uh, representing an authority. And so they're sort of semi-public in character. They contain instructions as well as exhortation to the delegate. Second Timothy, in contrast, is entirely personal, is entirely directed to Paul's delegate Timothy, trying to buck him up in the face of opposition, to encourage him to perseverance. Well, there's some controversial and awkward instructions to his delegates and these letters about the role of women, the care of widows, and the relationship of master and slave. How do we bring these forward to the 21st century? Before we do that, it's really important to understand them in their historical context. Everything that Paul says in these letters is utterly conventional for the first century Roman world in which he lived. This is not the world of gender equality. Mm -hmm. It is the world <laughs> of gender complementarity. It is a world in which slavery is a matter of fact in the Roman Empire and had been for a long time. Paul was not in a position to change those social dynamics and social structures. And if you think about it, it's taken us a good long time to do anything <laughs> about them either. Yes. So people get down on Paul because he said these things, but it's really important to recognize that nothing in what Paul says is by any way exceptional. In fact, Paul mitigates a lot of the harshness of uh, the language about gender and about social class in antiquity, but he was, he's, was not in a position, and he really didn't uh, choose to try to change them, because for Paul, all of these considerations, whether you're a Jew or not a Jew, whether you're female or whether you're male, whether, whether you are enslaved or whether you're free, all of them are what he would call adiaphora. They are things that don't matter. Hmm. What matters is God's rule over the human heart. And nothing, not being a woman, not being a man, not being a slave, not being a free person, is capable of blocking us from participation in that kingdom. Now, this is not the way we view things. We are post-revolutionary people. You know, we are in a world in which, on the basis of the experience of slavery and on the basis of the experience of sexism, want women to have full equality certainly do not want to be holding slaves. Fair enough. So what do we need to do? We need to engage these difficult questions. And we need to do so as adults. And we need to recognize these are not the only hard passages in Scripture. I'm going to, you know, imitate Joe Biden and say, come on, man. Uh, you know, there's, <laughs> lots of, there's lots of passages in Scripture that we wish were not there or that make us squirm. Some for good reasons, some for not so good reasons. 
So what do we do? We need to draw a sharp distinction between Scripture as normative and Scripture as authoritative. Normative, that is, guides our life. Sometimes we just have to say no to what Scripture says. Do we practice divorce even though Jesus said not to? Yes, we do. Do we have women preach in church even though Paul said not to? Yes, we do. Praise God. Do we... Do we drive a Chevrolet even though our daddy drove a Ford? Yes, we do. <laughs> do we vote Democrat even though our family voted Republican? Yes. So we do not necessarily follow everything that Scripture says. But just as our parents remain always authoritative for us, even when they, we don't do what they say, mm. because they raised us, they taught us, They helped us to become adults. So what they say matters to us, even if we don't follow the same path. In the same way, passages like what Paul says here about women or slaves matter to us. And we need to struggle with them. Because even though we don't do what they say, they contain wisdom. Can you expound upon that for a second? What wisdom would you say is found in like 1 Timothy 2? 11 through 15, and Paul's sure. view of women. Yeah. Well, uh, there's a number of things. And, and the thing is, is that, okay, what's, what, what we don't do normatively is, uh, you know, to suppress the speech of women in the assembly. Fair game. Now, we can play a game such as the great theologian Origen did. Let's suppose that Scripture always speaks to us, even though it's, scandal- it's scandalizing to us. So we say, what can we learn from this passage? Well, let's degender it. Let's forget about the fact that it talks about men wrangling in the assembly, talks about women wearing fine ornaments and hairdos rather than a virtuous life, and forbids women speaking from the assembly, in the assembly. But what happens if we never read that passage? We miss the fact that people should not be in conflict and argue during worship, that people should dress simply and non-ostentatiously when they worship, and that learning is done best in silence and hesekiah, as he here prescribes for women. Furthermore, so we can degender it. On the other side, we can regender it, and we can enter into the imaginative game of saying, suppose this was addressed to men rather than to women. What do we learn from that? What do we learn about inequality? What do we learn about partiality? I've done this with groups, and it's astonishing how that has an effect on how we view the passage. There are things to be learned here, but we have to be open to learning and and get over the scandal that it says something that we no longer want to do. Hmm. Just as when Jesus says, I tell you, you should not divorce. Well, what are we going to do? If we are in a divorce, do we stop reading the Sermon on the Mount? No. And Lord knows. Those of us who had done lawsuits disobey Jesus. Those of us who have gone to war disobey Jesus. Those of us who are not, you know, meek and humble of heart. Disobey Jesus. <laughs> Guilty. <laughs> Yet we keep uh, reading. 
the, re- the reason we keep reading is because there is wisdom in these words. But the problem is that we have to dig to get it. And that's difficult. Well, it's not so difficult. I mean, after all, we get through, <laughs> we get through the D. I I mean, we really, we have to grow up. You know, that's fair. It's really like, oh, I'm so shocked at this. Well, for God's sakes, there's a guy in the first century, a male in the first century. Give him a break. And let's be grown-ups and say, God, my granddaddy used all kinds of curse words. But, you know, maybe there's something we should learn from him. Mm. And you work at it. And it's really not that much more difficult than trying to figure out DMV instructions, you know. Uh, it's just exegesis. I, I think I, so, I think I get that. I think I get that, Doctor Johnson. The idea that like I've met people whose parents um, abused alcohol, and they say, you yeah. know, I learned a lot from that, and you know, yeah. I'm going to shape my life differently. But they they don't love their parents any less in, in many cases. Um, but they've learned from that experience. Now I, I would go further and say, look at. First Timothy 5, 3 to 16, on the support of widows. One of the shames of not reading the pastorals is that this passage is with 1 Corinthians 8 to 10 and Romans 14, one of the subtlest and most incisive ethical reflections found in the New Testament. How do we balance the needs of of the poor with the resources of the community. Mm. When should the community step in? Under what circumstances? When should households support their widows? And when should the community? These are not easy issues. They aren't for us. Every welfare system has to grapple with these issues. So here's a marvelous source of reflection. And if we're too easily scandalized over Paul referring to young women gadding about saying what they shouldn't say, well, then we're not grown up. Dr. Johnson, going along with that same thing, uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, he talks about the love of money being the root of evil or all evil. But seems to me that the wealth, the resources that come with wealth, enable a community to take care of those widows. So is wealth evil? Well, that's another problem that Christians have dealt with for a long time. I mean, there's a there's part of the Christian ideal is poverty. There's no question in the Beatitudes, in the sayings of Jesus. So on the one side... You know, the letter of James, the promises that God has made to the poor. So on the one side, Christianity has always privileged the poor on the basis of Jesus. On the other side, Christianity has always needed the rich. Mm-hmm. And just like other groups, has depended on the patronage of the rich. So yes, it's a kind of um, system in which... The rich are expected to put up the money, but on the other side, they have to be preached against and made feel (laughs) terrible because they have put up the money. So it's not a fair deal exactly. 
but but notice that there's a difference between wealth and the love of wealth. And this is what Paul is talking about. He's using the words of Greco-Roman philosophy. And he uses the term silar guria, the love of silver. It's the vice, acquisitiveness, which the letter to the Ephesians calls idolatry. That endless craving for more and more and more. It's not enough that I'm a billionaire. I've got to be a multi-billionaire. Mm-hmm. It's not enough that I swallowed Chicago. I have to swallow New York. That, Paul says, is the root of all evil. And so he uses another philosophical trope, which deals with contentment, autarkeia, which can be translated self-sufficiency or contentment, two sides of the same coin. If I do not have this endless craving for more, if I am content with what I have, as Paul says, food and drink and a covering, knowing that we came naked into the world and we're going to leave naked, then I can simply focus on what I have and not try to grab what somebody else has. So there's a real difference here between wealth that comes to us because we're energetic, we work hard, we deal honestly, and we gain money. And we share those possessions. That's a whole different world than the one where the love of money drives us, as Paul says here, into this endless pit of destruction, which is a good deal of the United States problem right now. (laughs) I might have to add air conditioning to my contentment needs in addition to covering... I understand that. It's all <laughs> circumstantial, isn't it? Some people need to, some people need two Mercedes. You know, who are we to say? You know. No, but but Celia, that is such. And what's fascinating here is that the pastorals invite us to think about something that nowhere else in Paul's letters are we invited. Mm. And this is one of the hardest issues of every society, of every community. Because it's easy to share wealth and all of us be on the street, right? We Mm -hmm. give away all our possessions and then we're beggars too. That's easy. It's dramatic. But how do you maintain the tension of acquiring and sharing? That's much harder. Hmm. Remember, money is only one of the possessions that we can cling to. And define ourselves by, you know, envy, the need to have what another has because we feel less because somebody has more than us, applies equally to the world of space, of time, of energy, of ideas, of Mm -hmm. enthusiasm, of virtue. All of these things we can cling to and say, this is me. You can't have it. Or we can open our hearts and share all of them. Ah, wonderful. Thank you. You know, in that same vein, in 2 Timothy, Paul speaks so encouragingly to Timothy, reminding him of his mother and his grandmother's faith. If you were writing 
today to young leaders in the church, what would be your advice to them? Well, you know, it's a, it, again, it's a very marvelous passage because this that passage in 2 Timothy 3 and in the letter to Titus, chapter 2, mm-hmm. all really focuses on the importance of the household or the family as the cradle of faith, that we learn faith as a habit. We learn trust. We learn obedience. You know, we, we learn to be faithful to God. If we grow up in that context, we all know that children who come from damaged neighborhoods or households where they experience abuse, torture, are introduced to drugs, alcohol, have a very hard time learning the faith. Mm-hmm. The faith can save them, but it's very hard for them to make it deep in their pores. And so Paul points out how we're nurtured makes a big difference. In Titus, he says, you know, instruct older women to, or instruct younger women to love their husbands and their children. And it's shocking. And you think, why in the world would something so basic need to be taught? The reason is, as we know, there are places in our country today where spouses do abuse each other, where children are abused, where they are not loved. So to go back to the point, what would I instruct young ministers today? Following Paul, I would say, don't make the church everything. Have the church serve society and begin with the household. One of my colleagues, Luther Smith, said in a wonderful sermon, Luke teaches us in the infancy account that the family is not ultimate, but it's necessary. The family is necessary, but it's not ultimate. We raise our children so they can go out into society, but we need to raise them. and We need to raise them in the faith. I think that the church and the family are two separate social bodies and they need to support each other. So I still have an important role as a grandmother then to keep saying the good things. Yeah, you have a most important role because Paul mentions the grandmother in that passage. No, he, me- he mentions it in chapter one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so no, I mean, it's, it's absolutely critical. And of course, the grandparent relationship is a privileged one. If you ask people, as I often do, from whom did you learn Jesus? They most often point to a grandparent. Hmm. That is, somebody who exemplified what the good news was about. They seldom say parents, unfortunately. <laughs> They'll sometimes say a teacher mm-hmm. or a friend. Grandparents have a very privileged access to the soul of children. Oh. Thank you. There you go. What a great discussion with Dr. Johnson for this week's podcast. We're still worshiping online Sundays at 9.30 and 11 a.m. You can join us on Facebook or at hydeparkumc.org slash live. Thank you to Matt and Celia for hosting this week's episode. I was the editor. I'm Monica Largesse. See you next week.